0: Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Rogoff, Lead Manager of Polar Capital Technology Trust. Ben joined Polar Capital in May 2003. He's also a Fund Manager of the Polar Capital Global Technology Fund and Polar Capital Automation and Artificial Intelligence Fund. He has been a Technology Specialist for 24 years. Prior to joining Polar Capital, he began his career in fund management at CMI as a global technology analyst. He moved to Aberdeen Fund Managers in 1998, where he spent four years as a senior technology manager. Ben graduated from St. Catharines College, Oxford in 1995. So first and foremost, Ben, a very warm welcome to you and thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you. If we could start at the top, perhaps you could talk us through some of the objectives and investment themes of the uh, Polar Capital Technology Trust.
1: Sure. I'm very happy to do so. I joined Polar, you know, um, back in 2003, as you referenced. But uh, the trust has been been going, you know, before then, and, and had, had been um, migrated from another shop before then. But yes, the trust is there to to invest in a sort of global portfolio of technology companies that hopefully can capture. You know or allow people to get exposure to some of the most important themes and companies around the world, benefiting and delivering disruption associated with technology. We've done that consistently with, um, you know, in a diversified way. Currently, we have a, you know just over 100 individual investments within the trust, with a skew towards the US, but happy to look globally for the very best opportunities.
0: So you mentioned some of the uh, the geographical allocation there within tech, which is uh, increasingly, I think, an all-embracing term. What, what sort of allocations have you got within the tech sector itself? Geographically, you know, the
1: tech sector has been a US-centric industry for, you know, multi decades for lots of very re- good reasons that we can't, haven't got time to go into. But, you know, Silicon Valley was originally set up to help support the aerospace industry in Los Angeles, believe it or not. And, you know, software and the venture capital industry is still very, you know, heavily skewed towards the US. And that supported, you know, lots of the internet companies. The internet itself was, um, you know, not necessarily all of it, but important elements of it were pioneered in the US. The portfolio is currently around 70% North America. That's a very sort of consistent number over the, well, nearly two decades that, that I've been at Polar. Actually, when I arrived, we were more like 50-50 and I've, I've moved it that way because um and something we should definitely call out. The way that I run this trust is with an, with, with an eye to the benchmark. At any given time, you, you should expect active share to be around 40 to 50%, which is lower than other trusts. That's how I run money. And we could talk about that if you care. But as a result, my, my geographic weighting doesn't, deviate that much so you know the us is where we look for our internet for our software uh, and some other exposures but but you know we're very happy looking in japan for robotics and we look in asia for semiconductors and so we typically go to the
0: geographies where we can get the best exposure to the hopefully the best themes
1: and, and how much have
0: you seen a, a change um investment appetite aside um in in the tech sector over what has obviously been a fairly defining uh, three to six months in 2020. Well, I think, uh, yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that
1: the, this, this period, this awful period for, you know, civilisation and the world and the economy has been an interesting testbed for a lot of technologies that may have taken years to be able to prove their value. And, of course, they've been able to do it in very short order um, during this testing period and you know in that sense there's lots of historical parallels for this, pe- this period you know if you went back to World War II in our annual report actually that um, your readers are welcome to have a, a peruse through. we talk about some of the accelerated innovation that happened at world, during World War II at Bletchley with you know rockets with moon landings with I don't know mass production of penicillin uh, lots of very exciting things happened in the technology world as a result of the World War, you know, the crisis that was World War II. and there's no question. Perhaps things are less profound today, but you know, things like video conferencing, you know, Zoom or or, or online education or telemedicine, things that um, online grocery delivery, uh, stuff that might have taken a decade perhaps to become mainstream, have become you know accepted alternatives to you know real world um, activities, and so uh, no question that that the sector has been a beneficiary for, from this hiatus. You know, it's been well-earned. And, and what, what we're seeing is this acceleration of trends. These trends are already there. You know, this is not just something that just happened. You know, the, the sector has been capturing nearly all of the earnings progress in global equity markets for the last decade, which is a very big statement to make and hard for me to support in a podcast. But just think about the disruption that tech has had in various domains like retail, in financial services perhaps, and in lots of other areas, that the internet as a general purpose technology has sort of created this incredible disruption that the current crisis has accelerated rather than
0: created, if that makes sense. Yes, and, and potentially even brought a, a new audience in, in terms of some of the, uh, shall we say, mature parts of the population who a few months ago were certainly not as tech savvy as they're becoming because they they've needed to for, for some of the reasons that you've just mentioned in terms of conferencing, online shopping uh, and so on. So w- with all that in mind, Ben, what, if we look at your, the sort of top holdings within your portfolio, what, what sort of names are held within there? Typically, our top 15 are
1: often, not always, but often are well-known companies that form decent parts of our benchmark that we like. You know, we don't hold anything in the trust that we don't like. We don't hold it because it's in a benchmark. These are stocks that we like, and they happen to be very well represented in the benchmark because they've done very well and they're, they're great businesses. So a few of those just to call out. Yeah, well, I mean, the number one position in the portfolio is Microsoft, which, you know, is a company that if you told me five years ago or seven years ago that this would be my largest position, I would have probably laughed at you. Um, But the company has done a phenomenal job of basically pivoting to a sort of software as a service or a more recurring revenue model. Has built out, you know, the second largest public cloud company or offering, Azure, which is second only to Amazon's own AWS. And so is in a very good position to benefit from the transition to public cloud computing. And the crisis, um, I mean, has been a very positive thing in terms of its offerings in communications like Microsoft Teams, for example. Uh, but also yep. Office 365 and just facilitating remote work, which I have to say, I'm not a big fan of sort of hackneyed phrases like things like new normal, but I do think this is a new normal and I don't think we're going back to an old world. And I think Microsoft is very well positioned you know, in the so-called new normal. So that's, the, that's one name I would call out. And I would also call out Apple, which is a stock that really doesn't fit any template of tech companies that we've ever seen before. I mean, this is what I think really without question, the best tech company we've ever invested in. Um, not necessarily. I mean, it's been a phenomenal return. I bought it in two thousand and three when I actually joined Polar, genuinely on my second day, I think, in the job. <laughs> you know, companies like this normally, when they when they become slightly slower growth, and Apple, just to be clear, didn't grow earnings last year, so this doesn't fit the normal template of a kind of company we're looking for, because this isn't a normal company. This is an extraordinary company with uh, an extraordinary customer base of sort of mass affluent people that understand that the premium associated with Apple products is not real in that the residual values of iPhones are much higher than, for example, other brands of smartphone. And as a result, it's a premium product for a mass affluent audience. And that mass affluent audience likes buying other products from Apple. So this company looks much more like a mass affluent consumer brand business. And I think a large part of its revaluation and performance over the last few years has been the recognition that there's longevity in a business that people thought was a Uh, a handset company, which obviously looks like it's a handset company from a revenue perspective, but really where the value in the business is all about the audience, the customer base, and the recurring revenues through the Apple Eyes, uh, App Store, and and Apple Pay, and so on. So that's two names I would highlight, but there are plenty of others if you want me to go on. Sure. uh, Perhaps you could just make it up to a, a hat trick, Ben. There's a lovely, lovely list of great businesses here. Facebook, Tencent, Alibaba. I mean, Amazon, I think everybody knows well, so I shan't ponder it, but it's our largest active And when I say active, I mean our exposure um, relative to the benchmark. And Amazon is still perceived as a retailer, so it doesn't feature in our benchmark. So our 3%, roughly 3% today waiting, is our largest bet against our benchmark. I was actually going to call, uh, talk about PayPal, a company that um, is one of our larger bets as well. It's also not in our benchmark. It's perceived to be a financial, and it is a payment asset after all. But this is a company that was effectively spun out of eBay uh, many years ago and has I believe, you know, has seen its business definitively accelerate as a result of the lockdown. And the transition from, you know, a couple of things. So the first thing is the, the transition away from cash to card or online um, has been accelerated. So PayPal benefits from the acceleration in e-commerce. It's also benefiting, interestingly, from growth on non-Amazon platforms. And as I'm sure you're aware, Amazon is the lion's share or certainly the very largest share of online commerce and dominates really in a lot of geographies. But PayPal typically does well when non-Amazon platforms do well, because Amazon has its own payments mechanism. So PayPal, for us, uh, we we added to very significantly during the COVID crisis as a way for us to get exposure to accelerated e-commerce off Amazon. And so far, so good. It's a really terrific performer of
0: late. And finally, Ben, given given the skew that you've mentioned towards the US, what with the extraordinary positive performance we've seen in the the year-to-date from the NASDAQ index, for example, is it a fair assumption that the trust has actually been holding up pretty well, given the uh, challenges that we've seen in the global economy as a whole this year? Yes. I mean, I think... I think that the uh, action of markets is,
1: you know, nearly entirely the credit, if there's any to be, to be given, is, is to policymakers who have been completely alive to the challenge associated with COVID-19. And the support that's been given in monetary and fiscal policy is extraordinary in any historical context. At some point, the Piper may, may need paying, but right now our interest as investors is, are very well aligned with policymakers who are very obviously um, wanting to avoid worst case scenarios associated with recessions that can become Steinbeckian, and they can become self-fulfilling and very difficult to kind of address. So the support is there, uh, the recovery in risk assets, uh, you know, has a lot, you know, is really due to policymakers. The tech sector, however, has done a, a, a good job itself. Of course, you know, if in the end all companies are, you know, collapse and the world falls apart, then no one's buying tech. But but sure. uh, with that support being, you know, being present today, the shift towards online away from physical and the disruption that tech has been causing and the acceleration of that disruption is resulting in a very profound shift of profit pools from certain companies to other companies. And, and if people are not using ATMs and they're, they're using PayPal, then the value of those respective businesses is changing. And as behaviours change, so we've seen this in the past and, and this acceleration clearly playing a part today, tech companies are beneficiaries of those of that reallocation. Without policymaker support, I suspect we would be you know, sharply lower in markets, and indeed we were before they stepped up. But the tech sector has also done a very good job of keeping the global economy going. Imagine remote work 20 years ago in the mm-hmm. first coming of the internet. Imagine how we would have kept children uh, occupied and remotely taught uh, without computing platforms or without video games after their work was done, and, and so on, you know. So the, the internet, the, the tech sector
0: has at least Made some of its own luck, let's say. Absolutely. Fascinating the insights. Unfortunately, uh, we have run out of time there. So many thanks once again for those insights. That's Ben Rogoff, the lead manager of the Polar Capital Technology Trust. And thank you for listening. Do join us next time for another interactive investor podcast.